Good to be here with everybody. Good to join together. Praise the Lord. Worship Him in song. Look into His Word. Let's pray before we look into God's Word. Father, we thank you for the gathering that we have here. We thank you for hearts filled with you. We thank you how your Spirit indwells us and leads us and guides us and helps us, encourages us, teaches us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning as we look into your word to know more about you, to be able to worship you more knowledgeably and better, and then, Lord, that our lives would be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know some of you, if not many of you, has some interesting, have had interesting conversations with people about God. And when I say interesting, I'm more referring to the people's opinions about God, people that really don't go to church and that sort of thing. Like, who does God allow into heaven? Or would he ever send anyone to hell? I'm talking about conversations outside the church. Uh, Who can claim to be his children? Is he a kind and loving God, or or is he a harsh, judgmental God? And you know, kind of the funny thing to me is that some will be very confident in their answers, and then as you go on in the conversation, they'll let you know that they never read the Bible. But they're very confident in who God is, what he will do, who he lets into heaven, that sort of thing. That's just been my experience. And they know it because they just know. Who doesn't know? Kind of a thing. And you know, I've said this often, but knowing God in truth, who he really is, is just about the most important thing we can do in order to be able to live out the Christian life and to talk to others about what is true. And you know, in all of that, we all make mistakes. We all fall short in different ways. But if our knowledge of God is shallow, that's what leads us into all kinds of troubles. Heartaches, regrets, losses, unnecessary conflicts, bad decisions, even maybe being taken advantage of, a shallow knowledge of God. Now, our current journey through the Old Testament book of Hosea gives us some very valuable information about God, information that will help us get a clearer picture of who God is more rounded out picture. You know, God told his prophet Hosea in the middle of the 700s BC, he told him to go marry this a promiscuous woman, an immoral woman. We used to say a woman of the night. And he did that in order to teach his people a lesson, a lesson in, a lesson in living color. He told Hosea also to have children with this woman. He married a woman named Gomer. 
And the first child was given the name by God, Jezreel. And the name means God scatters. So it's not a name that has a real good ring to it. It's like, you know, it's a negative thing. And then Jezreel also was a place of a horrible massacre that took place in Israel's history. So it had a bad reputation already. And so God is telling Hosea to name their first child uh, Jezreel. Well, then Gomer had a second child, and God told Hosea to name her Lo-Rohama, which means not loved, unloved. And then she had a third child, a boy, and God gave him the name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So here is God's prophet, Hosea, you know, a special servant of God. God has him marry a prostitute, has him have children with this prostitute, and then God names his children God scatters, not loved, and not my people. Now, <clears throat> over the years, some Bible scholars really don't like, you know, this thing about Hosea marrying a prostitute, and they kind of try to soften the account a little bit. And some will say, well, maybe Hosea went out and married an unmarried woman, you know, just a virgin, who afterwards began getting involved with other men. And they, you know, they try to maybe protect God's reputation or something like that, or Hosea's reputation by adding a little change to the story, softening it a little. But really, this is a part of the picture of God that we're looking at. God was using extreme measures to teach Israel a strong lesson. He wanted to make a strong point because the nation of Israel was deep into sin at this time. They were the prostitute. They were the ones being unfaithful to their God who had helped them in so many ways, in so many years, all throughout the his their history. And at this point in their history, he says, there is no acknowledgement of God among you. Now, I'm sure there were Israelites who were, you know, serious about God. Dedicated people, you know, here and there. But the nation as a whole was in horrible spiritual shape. And God was painting them, you know, with this living example, a stark picture to help open their eyes to the reality that they were and living in. A man of God marrying a well-known prostitute, their children being named, God scatters, not loved, and not my people. So now I want to go over the first three verses of chapter four that we looked at last uh, week just to, get, just to get us going here. We're gonna be in chapter five actually. But, but this is just an, an example. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. 
because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. And it continues on from there, and it doesn't get any prettier. And then chapter 4 goes on to warn them of what is going to happen because of the way that they're living, the choices that they're making, the way that they're not following God. And then if you get down to verse 19, the end of the chapter, it says, A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Now, the Israelites at this time, I mean, that's a, that's a dark picture. At this time, they are drawing closer and closer to the time of the Assyrian conquest. And that's when the Assyrians will come in and they will conquer the northern kingdom and take them out of the land. And God always warned them right from the beginning that if they started to just, you know, exclude him and not follow him, they would lose the land. That was promised hundreds of years before. And Israel was making, trying to make, make, have a partnership with Assyria because Assyria was this conquering nation. But in 722 BC, you know, and God told them not to do that. They want, he wanted them to trust him. But in 722, Assyria swept in and removed Israel from the promised land. It finally happened. You know, God warned them about that right from the beginning, and he would tell them all the way through their history, and it finally happened. The land that God promised them, that precious promised land all the way from Abraham, God kicked them out. He kicked others out before them because they had been so sinful. The land flowing with milk and honey, handpicked by God, the land they were supposed to live in forever. They spent 40 years to get there. That's the situation. So now, let's look at chapter 5 and see there's, this is a call. This is like the guard on the wall. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. Now, that's everybody. The monarchy, the people, and the priests. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mitzpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim was a name that they, they would give to Israel, the land of Israel, because Ephraim was a major character. You know, one of the sons was actually the son of Joseph, but Jacob claimed him as his son, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
and, and the land was named after Ephraim, you know, a certain part of the land, and it kind of became a synonym for Israel. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. <clears throat> now, in this book of Hosea, we have run into this charge of prostitution or adultery. And of course, what is being talked about primarily is Israel going after false gods, the gods of the nation. So it's prostitution, you know, spiritual prostitution, hooking up with other gods. And we saw God tell Israel to marry a prostitute to bring this picture to the Israelites in full color. This is what you are doing, blatant prostitution. And here is what this prostitution or adultery really translates into. It is God's people, Israel, really trashing the covenant. You know, just spitting on the covenant that God made with them as his special people, as the nation that he started, as the nation he gave the land to. These, this was God's covenant people. They entered into a covenant with him. It was to be a lifelong marriage, eternity long. And God was working things all throughout history to make Israel his cherished covenant partner. But then Israel became a harlot, a prostitute, you know, trashing the covenant. And you think of God working all of this out through all of human history, you know, because everything God did from way, way back was leading towards Israel becoming his people. And all the way through, God worked it out by taking his, you know, special individuals and putting them in certain places and marrying them in certain ways and, and just bringing them out, taking them down to Egypt and making them a, a humongous nation that came out and conquered other nations as they were going to the promised land. You think of all of that that God worked out and then now his chosen people are prostrating themselves, I'm sorry, prostituting themselves, <laughs> maybe both, I don't know. <laughs> being completely unfaithful. Now let's look at verses, verses 4 through 7. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even if Ephraim, same stumble into in their sin judah also stumbles with them so they're bringing their you know southern neighbor into this into the problem with them when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the lord they will not find him he has withdrawn himself from them they are unfaithful to the lord they give birth to illegitimate children when they celebrate their new moon feasts he will devour their fields It says, a spirit of prostitution is in their heart. 
I mean, it's deep. It's who they are. It's everything inside of them. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Total ingratitude, total selfishness. The hearts are far, far away from God. You know, the most inner person. Their covenant with God is totally meaningless to them. Everything in them just wants to go and play the harlot. Let loose and run with the pagans. He said they're, de they're dead. He said their, their actions do not permit them to return to the Lord. They are so deep, they don't even know their way back. They've gone so far into their sin, they can't even see the pathway back. And they're not even thinking about returning to the Lord. They're not thinking about faithfulness or turning in repentance. And he says, when they seek the Lord with their flocks and herds, the Lord won't listen to them. And I'm thinking, with their flocks and herds, they're just saying these rote prayers, you know, because they don't really, really don't care about the Lord, but they want him to help them. They want their herds to increase. They want their herds to be fed well. And he says, he will not find... They will not find him because he's withdrawn from them. Because God is a very serious covenant keeper. He's very serious about covenants and how meaningful they are. To him, they mean something. And he helped them all the way through their history. We are now going to see Israel pay the price for her prostitution and unfaithfulness. They decided to ignore their covenant with God who wanted to be their provider, their protector. And now as they ignore their covenantal relationship, God has now removed his protection. So look with me from verses 8 through 15. Here's the, the, watcher, on the watcher on the wall. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, Benjamin. There, there's an attack coming. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. So it's like they have this disease that's eating away at them. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery they will earnestly seek me. So the watchman at the wall is sounding the trumpet. Warning of the incoming invasion. In the law of God in the Old Testament, 
war and its ravages are listed as judgments for unfaithfulness to the covenant. And those three main cities that we saw fall were Assyria from the south, conquering them one at a time. Gibeah, Roma, Rama, and Bethaven. And God warns them that he's going to pour out his wrath on Israel's unfaithfulness, their breach of the covenant, like a flood of water. And those pursuing idols will be trampled in judgment. Sickness and disease will take its toll. All due to the unfaithfulness to the covenant. Trashing the covenant. Just discarding the promises of God. Israel has abandoned God. And now God is allowing them to suffer the consequences. So... <clears throat> It isn't really a good idea to break a covenant with God. Have we gotten that message, I think? <laughs> Whether you prostate or prostitute or whatever you do. <laughs> Either way, it's bad. I mean, Israel is the great beneficiary from her covenant with God. I mean... They didn't really add anything to God. He was adding everything to them. And there they go treating it like it was worthless. Like they had this covenant with God, but yet they desired everything that they saw, you know, that God could do so much better for them. He was there to protect and provide for them, and then they go chasing after Assyria to protect them. And you know what happens in years to come? As we said, 722, Assyria comes in and conquers Israel and takes them out of the land, the northern part, the northern kingdom. Nice covenant partners, aren't they? Well, we're going to see what happens as we continue in the weeks ahead. But what does it teach us? Are we in a covenant with God? We are, aren't we? We definitely are in a covenant with God. Because all who come to Christ, all of us who there are in Christ, we belong to the new covenant, sealed in Christ's blood. A better covenant, an eternal covenant. And when we come to Jesus Christ, confessing our sinfulness, admitting our helplessness to save ourselves, complete, completely agreeing with the scriptures that we are lost in sin with no hope of salvation in our own power, in our own goodness, anything that we can muster. We can't come close. We lay it all on the altar, <clears throat> excuse me, giving it completely over to him. That's what salvation is. We just give up and give it completely over to him. Then we are given true righteousness. Because Jesus Christ is true righteousness. And we can't have it without him. And then, because when we repent of our sins, we admit our sins, we come to Christ, we acknowledge that his death on the cross paid for our sins, then we are cleansed of our sins. 
and it's not something that we can feel. I mean, we may have an emotion, can't physically feel it, but we have stepped into eternal life through faith. And you know, I've said before, <clears throat> over and over again, I believe in our, in our culture, this is what clears up the salvation mystery. This, I think this is, this is very helpful. You know, when you ask people if they think they're going to heaven, they just automatically think if they're good enough to get to heaven. And they'll start saying the good things that they've done or the bad things they didn't do or, you know, whatever. How much they've helped others. And then some on their deathbed will try to grade themselves on how good of a person they have been. And oftentimes, I've said this before, oftentimes people will grade themselves by looking at other people and seeing how bad they were and say, well, I'm not as bad as that. And I, I, I've said that I used to compare myself to people like Bonnie and Clyde and Hitler and think, I'll probably make it. But that isn't our covenant, is it? Our covenant is in the death of Christ on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind. And that is our only hope. Our hope is in the death of Christ that made the payment for all of our sins. And just think of the people that were there with Christ on the earth, the religious rulers, and they just mocked him and made fun of him, <clears throat> cut him down, tried to oppose him at every turn, finally crucified him. Wow, what they did. And we can't allow that hope in Christ to fade because there have been so many people in these last days <clears throat> that seemed to be strong followers of Christ and then they just turned away. <clears throat> Something happened in their lives. But we can't judge by that. We can't judge by something bad happening. We can't judge by seeing, you know, people get so caught up in, well, look at this suffering. Well, suffering comes because of sin in the world. I mean, suffering has been here because people have been evil. And we even have evil in ourselves that gets washed away when Christ comes in. But we have to stay with that solid hope. We have to be firmly planted in that salvation message. We have to be covenant keepers. <clears throat> Not allow the world to just lead us away from that covenant in Christ. So, <clears throat> in this day, you know, they call it deconstruction. When people are finding reasons to leave the faith or leave Christ or not believe in him and they're online and they have all these followers that they're telling to do the same. Let us rejoice in the overwhelming love of God. And let us rejoice in the covenant that he has graciously provided for us. And we can't do a, we can't erase that covenant. 
I mean, Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. We can't get rid of it. But we don't want to walk away from it. And let him find us faithful. Let's pray. Father, you've given us these stories, these, these history lessons in the Bible to teach us in some way and sometimes teach us not to do what we're reading. Teach us not to just follow the pathway of looking out in front of us and following others <clears throat> or grabbing the, the riches of this world and leaving you. You're teaching us to follow you no matter what. No matter what we see, no matter what we can't answer, we know that you died on the cross to pay for our sins. And we thank you for that covenant that you have invited us into. And please strengthen our faith and strengthen our love for you and for the Father. We thank you in Jesus' name.